to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. If you received some notes when you came in, the page number on that pew Bible in front of you is provided, and I would invite you to turn with me, whether you have a Bible you brought with you or if you have to get one out of the seat in front of you. It'll mean so much more to you if you follow along in the Scriptures. As we come to the beginning of a new year, we need to take time to examine and to look forward to the future. And I know of no better passage to guide us in seeing God make changes in our life than Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. It's a passage we've been through many, many times in the past, but I believe there's a little more we can milk out of. Philippians 3, beginning with verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to say some things this morning that may seem a little harsh. And if you get offended, then you can apologize afterward. But uh, even though they're harsh, sometimes we need to hear some hard things in order to deal with something. Surgery's hard. Surgery is harsh. But sometimes surgery is absolutely necessary. We've become a nation, and this is a generalization of which there are a lot of exceptions, of course, but we've become a nation that is prone to excuses. We have an excuse for everything. I ran across this week a literal list taken off of literal accident reports that police had taken. It was sent to the insurance company, and these are some of the excuses for accidents. These are not made up. Here's one. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and then vanished. Or how about this one? Suddenly, a tree was there where no tree had been before. It just sprung up. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. (laughs) Or how about this one? The pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran over him. (laughs) Or this is my favorite of all the excuses on the accident reports. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) Well... There was an article a while back, in the, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal by Dennis Prager, that was, boy, it had so much truth in it. It was entitled, Everybody Has a Support Group These Days. Now, he had some things that we need to listen to, and I don't know if this man's a Christian. I don't know what perspective he was writing from, but what he said is true, and we're going to make a biblical application to it. He said, since the 1960s, the words good and evil have been largely expunged from the vocabulary of sophisticated Americans. They speak instead in terms of healthy and sick. That is why we're expected to feel sympathy for people who commit evil acts. After all, they're not responsible for their sickness. That victim mentality. He goes on to write about how since the 60s we have elevated feelings over behavior. Boy, is that true. Listen to what he says. One day, when my older son was two years old and playing in a park, a five-year-old boy walked over to him, threw him onto the concrete. 
the boy's mother, seeing what her son had done, ran over to her son and cried, Honey, what's troubling you? I knew nothing about this woman. But I knew for certain that she was highly educated because one would have to learn to respond the way she did. Well, you know what? He's right. We've become a nation of victims. There's always an excuse. It's never that I just did something stupid, that I sinned, that I was wrong. There's always an excuse. Anna Russell wrote a poem that's funny because it's so true to life. It goes like this. I went to see my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed, to find out why I killed the cat and blackened my spouse's eyes. He put me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and this is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in the trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now from kleptomania. When I was three, I suffered ambivalence from my brothers, and so it follows naturally I murdered all my lovers. And so I'm glad I have learned the lesson it is taught, that everything I do is someone else's fault. Well, you know what? That really resembles our day, doesn't it? That's why we sort of smile at it, because it's so close to the truth. Now, if you in any way, listen to this statement, if you in any way see yourself as a victim, you will never be a victor. You got that? That would, boy, that would have been a great place for an amen. And you all really look asleep this morning. I don't, I hate to do it, but your veins are full of sludge from all the candy and fats you've been eating over the holidays. So let me say that again. If you see yourself as a victim, you will never be a victor. That's better. All right. Now, I believe that Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, that contained within these verses, we've been given the path to a victorious life, and it involves dealing with those things that make us think we're victims. Now, if you would walk as a victor instead of a victim, no matter what your past may be, the first thing that's necessary is spiritual discernment. Look in the first part of verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. First part of verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Now, these verses yield a death blow to the doctrine of Christian perfectionism. Those who say that it's possible here on this earth to reach a perfect state of life in our behavior on this earth. The aged Apostle Paul, close to the end of his life, Paul said, I still got a ways to go. That, that word perfected literally means to reach the final goal. The word perfected means to, to reach the state to which something was intended. Now, probably a good synonym for it in our day would be the word arrived. It's not that I have already arrived. You see, growth in maturity and Christ-likeness in our behavior... Now, not in our standing before God, but in our behavior is a process that never ends until we see Him. And 1 John 3, 2 says, when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. Now, having said that, to be perfected, even in our behavior, is to be our goal. 
So there's a sense in which there is always to be a sense of dissatisfaction in our walk with Him, in our growth, in our maturity in Christ's likeness. We're to never stop and say, I've arrived. Now, I'm not talking about our identity. I'm not talking about our standing in Christ. I'm talking about our day-to-day behavior, our day-to-day walk with the Lord. There's a constant sense of, of dissatisfaction. We never come to the place that we say that's good enough. And, you know, that's the problem. You see, I, I, I have these magic glasses. And when I put them on, I see around a lot of your necks a little sign that says, I'm satisfied with where I am. Now, you didn't know it was there, but I can see it. And when that's true... You never grow. Here was Paul, the Apostle Paul. This wasn't early in his ministry. This was close to the time of his death. Who says, I've not yet been perfected in my living out of who I am in Christ. I still have ways to go. I have not yet arrived. Now, here's where the convicting work of the Holy Spirit comes in for believers. When we're open before the Holy Spirit and allow Him to search us, and to show us every area that's displeasing to the Father, every unchrist attitude, every unchrist act, every unchrist-like thought, everything He's told us to do, we've disobeyed, disobeyed Him in, everything He's told us not to do that we've disobeyed Him by doing it, the Holy Spirit begins to turn on the light. And as the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O Lord. Know my heart. Show me any anxious way. Reveal the wicked ways in me that I may deal with them. Now, I want to encourage you today or tomorrow, this will be worth your coming this morning if you'll just do this, to set aside some time, either this afternoon, tonight, sometime tomorrow, and just get apart, you and the Lord, and examine your own heart. Just to say, Holy Spirit, turn on the searchlight and show me all the unchristlike areas, all the areas that you want to deal with, to show me specifically where I have not yet arrived, where you're still doing a work in my life so I can cooperate with what you're doing. Now, when you do that, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal, He's going to reveal two things. He's going to show you yourself as you are. He's always faithful. I've never gotten alone with the Holy Spirit and just say, open before Him, turn on the searchlight, and not had some things pop up in my mind. Well, first of all, the thing He's going to do is He's going to reveal your failures. Where does your life not line up with the plumb line of God's Word? God's Word is like a plumb line that shows what's straight. And everything that looks crooked beside the Word of God is crooked because the Word of God is the standard by which everything else is measured. And so we begin to examine our life. The Holy Spirit will give a spiritual discernment to see the failures, to see the broken relationships that we need to take the initiative to mend, to see the root of bitterness that sprung up in our life that has to be rooted out. To show us habits, language, something that's harmful to our health or our testimony, something in our life that He's displeased with, where there's an angry spirit, a spirit of fear. And we're to do an all-out search for sin and failure to measure up to the glory of God. Ah, but you need to go just beyond your failures. The Holy Spirit will go beyond that, now listen carefully, to reveal to you your flesh. Now, your flesh is programmed by your past. Now, let me say that again. Your flesh is programmed by your past. And don't hear me saying that painful things in your past are just insignificant. Just don't worry about it and pretend it never happened. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what this passage is saying. The past is very important because it was the past that programmed your flesh. Now, let me make sure you understand this biblical concept of the flesh. When the Bible uses the word flesh... 
And it's not in the sense of all mankind, like where it says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And when it's not in the sense of, of your literal physical body, where it talks about in Galatians 2.20, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. When it uses it in a negative sense, as it does in Romans chapter 8, where it says that anything that's flesh cannot please God. When it uses flesh in the negative sense, like in Galatians 5, where it says if you're walking after the flesh, you're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. When it uses flesh in a negative sense... Flesh is a condition whereby we operate out of our own resources according to our old programming. You see, all of us have been programmed. You say, not me. <laughs> you've been programmed with denial to deny that you've been programmed. You see, we've all been programmed by, by, by two different things. First of all, we've been programmed by our environment. Your parents, your peers, your circumstances which surrounded you growing up. And because we have different environments, we all have sort of our own unique version of the flesh. And even two people growing up in the same environment because of differences in personality types will many times have different flesh patterns, that is, different programming they've had. And remember, when we operate out of that old programming, then that's what the Bible calls walking after the flesh. It can't please God, and the Holy Spirit will reveal your flesh to you. Now... Your environment has a tremendous impact on you. I, I got a letter a while back from a former member who has given me permission to share this. I would never share something like this unless I had permission, but she not only gave permission, but said if it can help others, I encourage it. This is a lady who had perhaps, I would think, the, the saddest version of the flesh of anybody I've ever counseled with. Boy, this is a long letter, and I just want to share just a few little pieces of it, and I'm leaving out some really tough parts. She begins to talk about the concept of the blessing. If you read that book by Gary Smalley and David, or Trent, not David Trent, he didn't write it, but whatever that Trent guy's name is, your brother. Um, uh, the, the blessing is that, you know, the, what parents give to the children, the acceptance would probably be a good synonym. She says... I did not know what was meant by blessing. The blessing is a message that you are somebody. You're special, you're needed, you're wanted, you're precious. Our parents are the ones we look primarily to for the blessing. We need the blessing from the time we're born and as we grow up into adulthood. We need the day-to-day -day blessing, the open affirmation that we're okay. I, I sat there and I thought about this and I asked myself, do you ever remember a time that mom and dad gave you the blessing? I could honestly answer no. She talks about her game her father used to play when she was just a little child and set her on his lap and bounce her up and down until she giggled and then he'd smack her across the face, almost knocking her to the floor until she cried. And he said, well, I won't go into all of it. This very, very perverted fella. Whenever I cried, I was told I'd be given a reason to cry. If I didn't dry it up, I was hit. I learned to stop crying. They would tell me that their job was to feed me, clothe me, and put a roof over my head. When I was 18, I was on my own. My dad told me that mom wanted babies like someone when someone wanted a kitten. But once the kitten stopped being a kitten and grew into a cat, she didn't want the baby anymore. So basically what he was telling me was I was an unwanted pet. I spent the majority of my childhood in my bedroom. I would entertain myself with dolls, with reading, writing, and fantasizing. I remember fantasizing that my parents were not my real parents at all. They had kidnapped me, and my real parents were looking for me. I learned not to make messes, noise, ask for needs or wants, cry, laugh, or drop anything. 
When I was nine, I had a pain in my side. I, I kept it a secret and went on to school. The pain grew worse and showed in my face. My teacher noticed my pain and asked me what was wrong. And I told her that my side hurts. I was sent to the nurse and she called my mom. Mom picked me up and she was furious. She said, your pants are too tight because you're fat. That's why your side hurts. When we got home, I was sent to bed to stay until school the next day. The only time I was allowed to get up was to go to the bathroom and the pain grew worse. But I stayed in my room and the next day I began to vomit and the pain was too great to remain silent. She took me to the doctor. I was taken to surgery and before they opened me up, my appendix burst. But I do remember hearing her brag on me for being able to walk into the hospital without any help. At Christmas time, my father would tell us he shot Santa Claus. At Easter, he'd tell us he killed the Easter bunny and made gloves out of him. He would tell me over and over a story that my mom had lost a baby and that I was the result of trying to heal mom's emotions. And if your sister would have never died, you'd have never been born. He made me think it was my fault this little baby girl died. He would tease me that I was born at a veterinarian's. And he would purposely cause physical or emotional pain when I laughed or when I cried. Well, I'm just skimming the surface. And you know what? It... It doesn't take a Ph.D. in psychology to figure out there's a person with some painful flesh. There's a person who has developed various coping mechanisms to, to, to just exist in life. And those coping mechanisms, when we respond to rejection and to hurts in our past, that's what the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh. When we live out of our own resources, based on our old programming. Now, the flesh not only is... It's programmed by our environment, but it's programmed by our experiences. The same woman goes on to share about being sexually abused by a church bus driver. If you've been in a divorce, if you've been through a war, especially a war where you were rejected when you came back home hoping for a hero's welcome and instead were spit upon, and some of you have experienced that, experiences of some accident, experiences of having an abortion, some sin in your past, all those things from our past go into programming our flesh. And we live when we live out of that old programming, we're walking after the flesh and we become a victim of our past. Now let me tell you something, and listen carefully to me. Flesh cannot please God. Flesh is never Christ-like. And the Holy Spirit must turn on the light and show you not only your sins, not only your failures, but He must show you the flesh that's behind the failures, your unscriptural programming. And until you recognize and deal with the failures through confession and repentance and the flesh with the cross of Jesus Christ, you'll be bound by your past forever a victim and never a victor. Well, first of all, if you'd be a victor instead of a victim, there must be spiritual discernment. The Holy Spirit has to turn on the light. And He's very willing to do that if you'll get before Him and be open. Secondly, there must be a strong decision. The last part of verse 12 says, But I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Now that phrase, press on, speaks of an aggressive endeavor. It means to give one's all for something, whether it be an athletic contest or whatever it may be. And if you're tired of failure and being a victim, you must be willing to make a strong decision to press on. Now, that strong decision is twofold. First of all, from the negative side, you choose to refuse to be a victim. 
You see, it all begins with a decision. You have to make a choice. I will not allow my past, my circumstances, that which I have done through sin, that which others have done to harm and to hurt me, I will not let that control my life. Nothing, nothing will make me a victim. Until there is that strong decision on your part to refuse to be a victim, you're not going to walk in victory. And you know what? And here again, I'm being a little harsh, but please hear my heart. You know the reason that some of you don't walk in victory? You've never chosen to. You've grown comfortable with using your past as an excuse for your behavior. And you've kind of even developed a liking to people feeling sorry for you. And you know what? After a while, pity parties are kind of fun. Do you have a pity party? Only three people invited, just me, myself, and I. And they get to be a little fun. And you can find comfort in pity parties. And when you refuse to deal with the past, you can always say, well, I went through this and I had that. And it gives you an excuse for everything. There must be a strong decision whereby I choose to press on, to refuse to let the painful past control my present and thereby my future. But not only is this strong decision to refuse to be a victim, I resolve to be a victor. I like the, the phraseology in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. I like that little phrase, purposed in his heart. And that's absolutely essential. The last part of verse 12 says, but I press on. I make a decision. I purpose in my heart that I'm going to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Now, what is that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of us? Romans 8.29 describes it best, that you may be conformed to the image of His Son. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 says the same thing in different words, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.19 says the same thing in other terms. I labor in birth again until Christ be formed in you. You see, a victor is one in whom the power of indwelling sin and the flesh has no hold. And Christ is thereby free to live out His resurrection life through me because I'm no longer bound by my past. I'm no longer bound by my flesh. I'm no longer bound by the power of sin. I've been set free from the power of sin. A victory is one in whom sin and the flesh has no hold. Christ is then free to live through us. Now, let me, hes- let me, without hesitation, say it's not enough to make a strong decision. You see, there's some people who have stopped right there. There's some people who have said, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to grit my teeth. And I will not give in to this thing. I will not be a victim. And, and, and it's got to start there, but it can't stop there. Because if it stops there, you know what you're trying to do? You're trying to overcome the flesh. <laughs> With the flesh. And flesh can never overcome flesh. Only the supernatural power of God can overcome your programming and that tendency that we all have to live out of our own resources, to do it ourselves. It starts with a strong decision, but it must move to a singular direction. Look in the last part of verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now that little phrase, this one thing I do, is the language of a focused individual, a singular direction. 
Victory and not victim. Now, what does that involve? Well, it involves two things. This one thing I do. What? First of all, I choose to forget the past. See it there in verse 13? Forgetting those things that are behind. Now, let's, let's make sure we understand the word forgetting. The word forgetting doesn't necessarily mean that it's no longer in our memory banks. You say, Pastor, th- there's some things happened to me. I could never forget. How could this precious woman who had been through all this in her past, how could she ever forget that it all happened? And suddenly, it's like on a computer where you punch the little delete button and it's gone. Or sometimes when I'm using a computer, it's gone and I don't even punch the delete button. But what does that mean? Forgetting those things that are behind. Well, the word forgetting there, doesn't necessarily mean it's passed out of your memory banks. It has the idea of no longer being influenced by. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 10:17, where it says that God will remember our sins no more. Now, that doesn't mean that God says, well, I don't even remember what you did. No, God's all-knowing. He knows the past, the present, and the future. He's saying, I will no longer be influenced in my relationship with you by the sins of your past because they are under the blood of Jesus Christ. Forgetting our sin. God forgets our sins. Not that He doesn't know they happened, but that He has chosen to not let them influence our decision with Him because of what has been done with the sins. In the same way, when He says forgetting those things that are behind, He doesn't mean that you can no longer recall what happens in your past. He doesn't mean that suddenly you go through a memory lapse. He means I have chosen that the past will no longer be the influence on my life. I've said this many times before, but the problem with most believers is they've got their headlights on their rear bumper. And they're constantly focusing on the past. Well, you say, well, how do I forget it, Pastor? I mean, okay, I resolve, I make this strong decision, I purpose in my heart that I won't be a victim, but this thing has, is such a part of my life, and the hurt was so deep, and the pain, and the scars... How do I do that? Well, you know what? When I give you a solution, you know what almost everybody's response to the solution is? That's too simple. That's where most of the psychologists and the psychiatrists have missed it. You know, you've got to come up with some way to justify your Ph.D., I guess. And so it's got to be this complicated... Listen, let me give you the solution. You ready? Nail it to the cross. <laughs> That's too simple. No, you missed it because you're making it too complicated. You nail it to the cross. Now, let me show you something. Galatians 5.24 says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Luke chapter 9.23 is perhaps the key verse in the Bible in walking in victory. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And remembering that the cross was the instrument of death, I daily reckon, that is to count by faith as being true, that the old me that sin in the flesh had authority over, the old me has been crucified with Christ. Sin no longer has authority over my life. I no longer have to walk after the flesh. And then as I have reckoned self to be dead indeed unto sin, as Romans 6.11 says, then I take all of that flesh, all of that old identity, all of those old coping mechanisms to deal with the pain and the hurt and the sin of my past and all of the feelings of inadequacy and all that makes up that old identity apart from Christ. And I take it daily and I nail it to the cross. Bitterness creeps up in your life. Reckon yourself to be dead to that bitterness. Take it and nail it to the cross. 
feelings of inadequacy that you just don't feel your case. Reckon yourself dead to all that. It has no control over you. And then take it, bundle it up, nail it to the cross. Sins that I have been forgiven for, that false guilt is constantly coming back. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Over and over it seems to plague me. And I've asked for forgiveness. Like one fellow went to an old pastor and said, I've asked the Lord to forgive me for this a thousand times. And the old guy said, well, when you went, did you claim the blood of Christ? Did you claim who you are? He said, yes. He said, then you asked 999 times too many. I confess it. Then when the false guilt begins to come, I simply reckon myself to be dead to that. And then I take it and I nail it to the cross. Same thing with addictions. On and on we can go. You say, but that doesn't go to the real complicated. That's for every area of your life. Nail it to the cross. It has no authority in you, no right to control your life. And you say, Pastor, is that not a contradiction? You've said, let the Holy Spirit bring up our past, and then you say, forget our past. That's not a contradiction. You need to know what you need to forget. (laughs) You think on that a while. You need to know what you need to forget. You need to know exactly why your flesh is programmed the way it is. And you need to know those th- what that's done in your life and, and begin to see the pattern so that you can take that. You've got to know what to nail to the cross. You've got to know what you need to forget. Forget the past. This one thing I do, forgetting the past, that's the first part of the one thing. I choose to not let it influence my life. And then I began to focus on the prize. In verse 14, he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word goal in verse 14 literally is the word goal marker. We would use the word tape. That is the thing that stretched across the track at the end of the race. And he says, I stretch forth, I, I go for the tape. The goal marker, the goal, that which is at the finish line. And what is it? The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, that's using terminology from the Olympics and the Isthmian Games of that time where when the winners of the race, the winners of the contest would be called up to a raised platform in the middle of the athletic field and they would be called up where they would be given reward for their race. And here's what he's saying. He says, my singular purpose is to refuse to let my past control me, to refuse to be a victim, and to walk in His resurrection power, proclaiming and appropriating my identity in Him so that my life looks like His life because it's His life in me being lived out through me. And when it's all over here, whether it's death or He comes again, and I cross the finish line, I long to hear Him say, Come on up, great is your reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. This morning, you face a choice. You can choose to be a victim, or you can be a victor. But I need to warn you, if you know Jesus Christ, and you choose to be a victim, when you stand before God, you'll be without excuse. You can say, but Lord, my parents, but Lord, my spouse, but Lord, this, and, and Lord, they didn't get the break. Lord, and He's going to say to you, I died that you might have victory. And I died so that you might say with Romans chapter 8, verse 37, In all these things, 
all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. Let's bow our heads together.